Thank you, Dr. O'Neill. Good afternoon, everyone here in Charlotte. And greetings, friends around the world. I just love saying that, you see. <laughs> We're delighted to be here with you in this beautiful hall that has been made available to us. I want to welcome our guests today. I know we have some, some travelers coming through. We're happy to have you with us. We have some folks that may be here for the first or second time. And again, we hope that you'll find us a warm and loving congregation. We're delighted to have you with us today. This really is a lovely facility. Certainly, uh, it shows how the other half lives, I guess you could say. And we're delighted uh, that the Presbyterian Church made this available to us today. You know, brethren, as our nation prosecutes the war against terrorism, and as they deal with the results of these incredible natural disasters that have buffeted our country, there's renewed interest in religion by many in our country. Our president who's a sincere man, reads his Bible. He refers to God in his various addresses and speeches and often mentions prayer, even in this age of separation of church and state. And you're probably aware of this, but both houses of Congress start each day's business with prayer, even at this time when prayer is a controversial thing. And as I said, there's a lot of controversy about prayer in the classrooms, at sporting events and so on. And yet most people, if you ask them about it, if you did a poll on the street, most people would tell you that they think prayer is important, even essential, even though they may not actually pray themselves, you see, which would often be the case. You know, God's Word, the Bible, from beginning to end, has a tremendous amount to say about prayer. It has examples of righteous men praying, and uh, many of the actual prayers are recorded. Some of these stories are very familiar, so I won't turn back to all of them. But you know, in Genesis 12, that Abraham heard God. They obviously communicated in that way. And God heard the cries of the Hebrews in Exodus 3. We'll be reviewing that and rehearsing that in the days to come as we prepare for the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. We know that Moses conversed with God. God spoke to him, and he conversed with God. Many... Uh, God also spoke to Joshua, to some of the judges. Many of David's prayers, eloquent prayers, are recorded in the Psalms. They're inspiring. We love to read them, and it's there for us to see how he talked to God. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, uh, or Daniel, and many of the minor prophets, they all understood the importance of prayer. Now, when we get down to the time of Jesus Christ, prayer is even more important, more prevalent. And many poignant prayers are recorded and many exhortations to pray is given in the Scripture. Now, as I considered this subject uh, that is so important to each of us as Christians, I decided to take a look at our perfect example. Now, who might that be? Well, Mr. Lyons, in his fine sermonette today, used my opening scripture, so we'll not go back there. <laughs> in John thirteen fifteen, it says that Jesus Christ is, our, he set them the example, and the subject matter there was the foot washing service, and he pointed that he set them an example. I would like for you to turn back to 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll see this instruction repeated by Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, 
verse 21. Peter wrote, For to you, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. Example could be a teaching aid, an example that we are to emulate, that we are to follow. Peter understood that Christ set the standard. And it's the standard that we should strive for. The example set by our Savior. So today, brethren, let's look at the prayers of Jesus Christ, our perfect example, and see what we could learn. Our object will be to be more effective, to become more effective in our prayers and to draw closer to God, particularly in difficult times that we live in as we look at what is ahead. If you'd like a title for the sermon, it's pretty obvious, The Prayers of Jesus. There are 19 examples of Jesus praying in Scripture. In some of these accounts, His words are not recorded, but the context of the story gives us a clue a strong indication of what he was praying about. And as we look at these examples, we'll see some important things, such as, what did Jesus pray about? What did he pray for? What was on his mind when he went to God? Where did he go to pray? And what form did his prayers take? How were his disciples instructed to pray? And by looking at these things, we should learn how to approach God And expect answers. Jesus Christ always expected God to answer him. We can expect answers to our petitions and our requests of the great God. Let's look back at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And we'll look at some examples of the prayers of Jesus Christ. Luke 3, verse 21. Here we see... John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, baptizing people. And in Luke 3, verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So here we see... The baptism of Jesus Christ. Now, what did he pray for? It said that he prayed. What did he pray for? Well, obvious in the context we see for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given as he prayed, as he came up out of the water and and was praying. Obviously, he, I'm sure, prayed for strength, physically and spiritually, for what lay ahead of him in the next three and a half years. He knew what the future held. And he knew that he would need that strength physically and spiritually. I'm sure that he prayed for wisdom and for patience and for compassion and courage as he lived and worked with all of those unconverted people with the things that he faced in his life and time at that time. So we see at this important time, he prayed. And while we don't have the exact words, I think the context tells us some of the things that were on his mind. While we're in Luke, turn over to Luke 6, just a chapter away. Luke chapter 6. And let's look at Luke 6, verse 12. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer 
Now, this was not a, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It was not that kind of prayer. He prayed all night. It obviously was something very fervent and something that was important to him. And as we go on, we see in verse 13, And when it was day, he called his disciples to him. And from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Jesus prayed all night long before choosing the twelve disciples. It was such an important thing that he was doing. And he wanted God's guidance and direction in doing so. Now think about it, brethren. Were there other candidates that didn't make the cut? Probably. Probably. He had to decide who he was going to choose. Do you think that Jesus Christ agonized over Judas, knowing how it was going to turn out? He prayed all night in preparation for doing those things. These men were to be key players in the plan that had been laid out since before the world began. And at this juncture, Jesus took that opportunity to implore God to give Him the guidance that He needed. We can see that Jesus spent a long time in prayer asking for guidance before making the right choices in this important decision. Again, as we just look at these prayers, I hope that you see a pattern is coming together. Look at John, chapter 11. Here's a passage that's familiar to you, very inspiring. Here in chapter 11 of John, we have the story of this major miracle, the resurrection of his friend Lazarus. Look at verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Jesus' friend was ill, sick unto death. Now, uh, as we go on, you can read the whole story, but let's drop down to John 11, verse 41. John 11 Verse 41. Then they took away the stone. You know the story. Lazarus has died. They had buried him. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Obviously, as we look at this account, brethren, he had prayed about this prior to that moment. Clearly, he had gone to God and explained what he wanted to do and what he was going to do. But he wanted those standing there to know that God the Father always heard his prayers. And so he prayed that prayer in front of them so that they would know. So this major miracle involved prayer on the part of Jesus Christ. Let's look at one more example to illustrate the point I want to emphasize. Let's look at Jesus Christ's prayer in the garden. Look at Matthew 26. Turn over to Matthew 26. And here we have, again, another familiar passage for all you students in the Bible. They're all familiar, which is good. But I hope you never tire of reviewing these things and rehearsing these things and looking for things that we can come to understand more clearly and that we can apply to our lives. Matthew 26, verse 36. 
Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. Verse 37, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Interesting, Jesus Christ took his close friends with him. Out of the twelve, he took those with whom he was the closest, his close friends with him. You know, we're all that way. We like to have those that we can depend on, those that we're close to, those that we relate to with us in difficult times. It goes on and says that he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Why sorrowful? Well, leaving his friends, knowing that they, what they were going to face in the days ahead, knowing the awful events that lay just ahead for him, would certainly put you in the state of mind of being very sorrowful and distressed. It was not an easy thing, certainly for him. And he knew again what his disciples and would be facing as well. 30, verse 38, And he said to them, My soul is so exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay with me here and, uh, here and watch with me. Verse 39, He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You notice he said, if possible. Uh, Think about this. He knew the plan from the beginning. They had worked out all the details. He had to understand what lay ahead of him. And yet he was saying, if possible, if there's some other way that I've overlooked, that this can be worked out, that we can carry out our plan. But in any case, he said to God, your will, not mine, your will be done. He was completely submitted to God's will. Going on down to verse 42. He went away again for a second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Certainly, brethren, it's not wrong as we look at this for us to go to God repeatedly and ask for things that that are on our mind and to ask for His help and His intervention and His guidance. Verse 43 And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Now, this was not vain repetition. This was heartfelt prayer to God for the strength and for the intervention that he needed at this very difficult time. Verse 45, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So Jesus prayed fervently at that time for the strength that he needed, and I'm sure he was praying for his disciples because of what they faced. Brethren, as we look at these accounts, as we read these familiar passages of Scripture, what do these stories reveal to us about Jesus Christ? We can read them and become familiar with them and really lose some of the impact that they should have. What can we learn from these, record, uh, these events that are recorded for us? We can see, brethren, that Jesus went to God in prayer before making any important decision in His life. We've seen the important decisions described there. And He went in each case, at His baptism and so on, to, to do that. At the choosing of His disciples, 
uh, major miracles, his own trial and death on the stake. Before that, he prayed fervently to God and asked for that. He asked for guidance and wisdom and strength and courage. Brethren, we should be diligent in doing the same thing. Are you considering baptism? Should you be? Certainly, that's a very important choice that all of us make in our lives. We come to that point. And sometimes people tend to put that off, not realizing that until your spiritual house is in order, not much else is going to fall into place. But it requires prayer. Jesus prayed at His baptism, and I would urge you, if you're considering baptism, or if you should be, that you pray fervently about this and ask God to show you where you should go and how it should be done and what you need to do to be ready. It's what Jesus did, and it's our certainly a good example for us. Are you making major decisions in your life? A career choice? A business decision? Sometimes people just start off in here and then there, and you know, many times they'll start many things over their lives and end up in midlife not having accomplished much because they never gave it the prayerful consideration that it needed. For making a major decision about a career or a business, it certainly is something you should take to God in prayer and ask for His guidance. Are you getting married? Or are you thinking about getting divorced? Any major decision, certainly, should you should take to God. Marriage is very important. And the sorts of things that uh, you do to prepare for that, to do it in a godly way, are important. And some are, I know, in this life, it's very common in the land that we live in. And in this world today, most, marriage, most marriages, or many marriages, end in divorce. But you can go back to Malachi, it says very plainly, while there may be some valid reasons for it, God hates divorce. Very plain. So if you're considering those things, that's the sort of thing that you should take to God in prayer. Heartfelt prayer. Are you considering a major move? Um, sometimes people take the geographic cure. Mr. O'Gwen used to call it. If you're not happy here, move over there. <laughs> Sadly, when you get over there, you may have the same problems that you had over there. <laughs> Before making a major move that will impact your life and your family and those sorts of things. Certainly, heartfelt, fervent prayer is something that you should do. Are you facing a great trial? or a test, or a difficulty. It seems for us in God's church that we're either usually getting over a trial or going into a trial. (laughs) It's a transition sort of thing. And yet, in the human experience, we know that we have those things, and sometimes it seems that one comes on the heels of another. But brethren, God knows what we need. And we should go to Him if we're facing a trial or a test or some difficulty. The answer may not be plain to us, But it may be very plain to God. And we need to ask Him to reveal those things to us in ways that we can use them so that we'll be certain that we're in accordance with His will. Remember, Jesus Christ says, Not my will, but yours be done. And that should be our approach. It's not easy, but as human beings, for us to subject our will to His. And yet, that's the example that we have. Follow the example of your Savior and Master and spend time in fervent prayer if you're facing the sorts of things that we've looked at. Now, brethren, where did, where did Jesus pray? Turn over to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Mark 1, 
verse, I'm sorry, verse, verse 35. Mark 1, verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed into a solitary place, a deserted place, it says in the margin, and there he prayed. So, uh, his ministry had begun in earnest at this point. And notice, uh, he got up early and went to a solitary place. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's obvious since things had begun that when everybody else was up, they were looking to him for teaching, for healing, for miracles, for the thing that, that he was doing. So, once the day began, there would be too much uh, demands upon his time and so on for him to have time to pray. And certainly we find many of us ourselves in that situation today. If we wait until uh, every, the day is underway, there's no time to pray. Jesus got up early because it was very important that he have the strength that he needed and the contact with God and the answers that he needed that come from prayer. And so he went to a solitary place early and prayed fervently. And brethren, I hope that we can follow that example. And if it's possible for you to do so, to to put the priority on it so that you can do it before the rest of the day begins. Because you may find yourself in a situation where the prayer that you didn't make is the one that you really need. So being early and doing it, uh, giving it first place in your life is a very important thing. Now look over at Luke chapter 5. We'll see another facet of this. Luke chapter 5. <coughs> Luke 5 and verse 16. It says, So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Notice that, brethren. Often it was his practice. This wasn't an occasional thing. You know, we are creatures of habit. We are creatures of habit. And there are good habits. And if we'll get into the habit of doing those things, then we can build on it. And it becomes a basis for, for good things. Good things physically, good things spiritually. And it was, he often withdrew and prayed. Brethren, I hope that we can follow that example and uh, practice the same thing that our Savior did and often go to a place where we're alone and pray fervently to God. While we're in the book of Luke, again, looking at these uh, prayers and the example that is set, look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. Luke chapter 9. And verse 18. Again, we find in this passage, Jesus Christ is praying. Luke 9, verse 18. And it happened, as he was alone praying, he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. That's interesting. Uh, They knew where to find him. (laughs) They knew that if he wasn't in their midst, he was at some solitary place alone praying. So they knew where to find him. And uh, it was, again, his habit, clearly. And they could um, certainly know where he was. They knew where to find him. Now, as we think about this, about where did Jesus pray and when did he pray, let's go back to very basic instruction on that in Matthew chapter 6. We have very clear instructions. Very clear instructions on this subject. Matthew chapter 6. And verse 5, Jesus said, and when you pray, you notice he didn't say if you pray, but when you pray, 
you shall not be like the hypocrites. Hypocrites being those who are the pretenders. Those who are one way but want you to think something else. You know, as we approach the Passover season, we know the words of Paul where he said that we are to keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's the exact opposite of hypocrisy. We aren't to be pretenders. We're to be genuine. And that's what he said here, that our prayers should be genuine, not hypocritical. You shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. You know, the religious leaders of the time made a great show of their prayers, eloquent prayers, I'm sure. But it was all for show. It wasn't from the heart. It wasn't for the right reasons. They made a great show. You know, today, if you will uh, see what happens when uh, some great event occurs now and they call upon some well-known minister to pray, it will often be some long, eloquent prayer. But maybe not heartfelt. And it's not to be for show, is what Jesus Christ was saying. Going on, he says, But when you pray, verse 6, Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Your prayer, you see, is between you and God. Verse 7, But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard. For their many words. God's not impressed with volume. <laughs> see, with uh, verbosity. And certainly there's a time to pour out your heart. But it's not the vain repetition that is built into so many of the churches of this world today. You see, as we think about this, brethren, private prayer should be our mainstay between us and God. Now, public prayer is not wrong. Not at all. It's appropriate. As we open and close services, as we ask God's blessing on meals, as we uh, have weddings and other official uh, events of that kind where we want God's presence, uh, important meetings, those sorts of things, certainly at funerals, etc., those sorts of things, public prayer is fine uh, in its place. However, it should not be offered to impress others. Our public prayers are directed to God and should be simple and direct. It's not wrong uh, here at services, as we open and close, to mention the messages in our prayers, but it's not necessary or desirable to recap the sermonette or the sermon in the closing prayer. Now, I don't see this as a big problem, but uh, a reminder is good from time to time that our prayers should be simple and direct and directed to God. Now, rather than let's consider some other things for which Jesus prayed. He is our example. And the things that interested Him, the things that He focused on, should be things that interest us and things that we can focus on. Turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 25. <clears throat> Here we see Jesus praying, Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. 
you'll notice that Jesus constantly gave thanks. In almost every case when he is praying, and it's recorded, he starts by giving thanks. He constantly gave thanks to God. It's interesting when we think about that, brethren, because that's not really a part of human nature. I, several years ago, took the Dale Carnegie course, and one of the things they taught us was never expect gratitude. <laughs> they said, you're very likely, you're, it's not going to happen. If you, get, if you receive gratitude, great, but don't expect it or you'll be disappointed. You see, they understand human nature. But we're not to be that way, brethren. We are to be thankful. And we are to give thanks to the great God from whom every good and perfect gift comes. We are to have the attitude of being thankful. And Jesus, in His prayers, always did that. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 10. You know the story. It's a wonderful story here in, in uh, John chapter 6. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. I never fully appreciated the, the magnitude of this miracle until several years ago at the feast in Pensacola. There were about 5,000 people there. And for family day, they had a fish fry. And they had a caterer come in to feed 5,000 people fish. It was a big operation. They had several big cookers and several servers. And they worked all day to prepare this food and to feed 5,000. And it really was, helped me to wrap my mind around the magnitude of this miracle and, and what was actually done back there with this many people being involved. So you know the story, how the people were hungry and how they took the loaves and the fishes. And we'll pick up the story in verse 10. Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. What did he do? The first thing was he thanked God for what he was about to do, for providing the raw material, as it were, for this great miracle, the loaves and the fishes, and, and that he was going to multiply it to do all of that. Now, this wasn't rationed, you notice. He says, and the disciples, uh, to, to those sitting down, uh, took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples, to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So there was no limitation here. <laughs> they had all they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. But he thanked God for the food. And I'm sure he thanked God for the miracle in advance because it was a great miracle that demonstrated his power in so many ways and was certainly impressive to those people. And they knew that something great and wonderful was happening there. Turn back to Luke 22. Again, looking at things that Jesus did so we can follow the example. And we try to do this in all our activities here and around the world where the church is involved. Luke 22. Again, the account here of the Passover, something that we're looking forward to in just a few weeks. Luke 22, in verse 15, it says, Jesus said, With fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then, as the, it began, and uh, he picks up, we'll pick up the story in verse 17, then he took the cup, and gave thanks. 
and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I said to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. But he thanked God for it. He asked his blessing on it. And I'm sure as he gave that prayer, he, he knew fully that this was a symbol of his blood and his broken body. I'm sure it was a fervent prayer. And yet he thanked God for that and for the symbolism and so that they could understand. Going on in verse 19, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, brethren, as we see these things at the Passover, we'll ask the blessing on that and give thanks. Thanks for Christ's sacrifice. Thanks for what these symbols mean and how poignant it is for us. And ask God to help us to understand it even more fully. Now, we follow this example in giving thanks. Now, we don't often uh, do this in public, but sometimes it's thrust upon us. We were having a meal with some business people recently, and, and the gentleman who was our host looked across the table and says, Well, Dr. Meredith, aren't you going to give thanks? And so Dr. Meredith very calmly and quietly bowed his head and we gave thanks there in the restaurant so we wouldn't embarrass our host. But generally that's not something that we would do, although some do it and it would not be wrong except that it's not our custom and it's not necessary. But certainly we do give thanks for the food that we have, for the lovely places that we have to meet, for all the blessings that God showers upon us. And we see that this was carried on by the apostles. Turn back to Ephesians 5. Let's look at Paul's instruction on this subject of giving thanks. Ephesians. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Actually, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll begin in verse 18. It says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So, brethren, we have the instruction from Jesus Christ and His example and from the apostles that we are to give thanks for all things. And I know that you do, and it's, it's pleasing to God when we do that. There are other examples of prayer that are very important for us. Prayers of intercession. Turn over to Luke 22. Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. And we'll look at verse 31. Here Jesus praying for, for Peter. Peter, the impetuous one, who thought that he was so strong, and yet Jesus gave him an insight here. Luke 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And Jesus said in verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He knew that there would be a lapse. And yet he said, I've prayed for you and strengthen your brethren. So, here we see that he prayed for Peter. He interceded on behalf of Peter so that Satan wouldn't sift him. Not a pretty picture to be sifted, I'm sure. Peter probably had this in mind back in 1 Peter 5. Mr. Lyons didn't read it, so I will. 
First Peter 5. Peter's talking about Satan and how he could devour you. I think this is what he had in mind. He knew that Jesus Christ had intervened for him before. First Peter 5, verse 8. Peter wrote, Be sober, be vigilant or watchful, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter knew that he had come close to being devoured, as it were. But Christ had intervened for him in prayer. So it's important that we have that in mind. Jesus Christ was concerned about his disciples and he prayed for them, for their deliverance and so on. Look at John 17. He prayed for all the disciples. We'll read these scriptures in detail at the Passover service. John 17. Let's start in verse 14. John 17, 14. Jesus said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. Jesus said in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus Christ prayed an intercessory prayer for the disciples to protect them from Satan. And I'm sure, brethren, we should pray for each other and ask God to protect us from Satan. Give us the the spiritual strength to resist Satan and his demons, and the temptations and things that they may throw our way. Because if we resist Satan, he has to flee from us. We must draw close to God. Jesus prayed for the disciples. He also did something that was just remarkable. Turn over to Luke chapter 23. Just a remarkable thing, showing the depth of his love for mankind. Luke 23. Something that would be hard for you or for me to do, I know. Luke 23, verse 33. Let's begin in verse 32. Luke 23, verse 32. There also, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. So here we have the account of Calvary. The Lord is being crucified. Verse 33, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. A horrible execution. Cruel, painful. Designed to be so, by the way. It was to be cruel and painful. Verse 34, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What a remarkable thing to pray for the people who are torturing you and killing you. He prayed for his executioners. It showed, again, the depth of his love for mankind and for us. So we see that he prayed for his disciples, for his executioners. He also did something that we can all relate to. Turn back to Matthew 19 as we consider how Jesus prayed and for what he prayed. Matthew 19, verse 13. This is a tradition that we have in the church of God. It's one that you all love and we all relish, particularly at feast time. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. They didn't want to be bothered with the little kids, you see. They didn't have the big picture as it were. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. 
And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. So Jesus used this as a learning moment. He took those children up and he prayed for them, for their safety, for their protection, for their provision, I'm sure. And he also used it as this moment to let the disciples know and the others there that that they must become like little children in attitude, in approach to things, if they are to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And certainly, brethren, we as individuals should pray for our children and for the children of others. You know, my children are all grown, but they're always my children. Uh, my mother still calls me boy, and I'm 66 years old. <laughs> You're always somebody's child. The circus is in town here in Charlotte, and they'll say, come one, come all, children of all ages. So we're to pray for each other, and we're certainly, brethren, to pray for little children, for ours and for others. It's an evil world, and they need protection. And we need to ask God to guide our children and protect them from all the things that can distract them and and harm them. And I know that you do. It's the easy part of praying is to pray for the children. Now, Let's look at some other things that characterize the prayers of the Messiah. Look at Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Luke 22. And we'll read in verse 44. Here we uh, read earlier that in Gethsemane, this time before what he was going to uh, endure, and he's praying about that. Luke 22, verse 44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now that's intense. That is a fervent prayer. He was very fervent in his prayer. It was the sort of thing that that, uh, it's hard for us to imagine. And yet he was that fervent. Uh, Turn back a few pages and we'll see another example. Plain instruction. Luke 18. Luke 18. Verse 7. Actually, and this is the, uh, the parable of the unjust judge who was not responsive to the widow. And... Uh, She was persistent. It's a wonderful story and a lot of lessons that you can learn there. But in Luke 18, verse 7, it says, And shall God not avenge His own elect? Brethren, that's the church of God. That's you and me. That's those who have been called and who have the Holy Spirit. Shall not God avenge His own elect who cry out to Him day and night, though He bears long with them? Note His instructions. Cry out. Sometimes we're too reserved. Sometimes we don't really put our heart into it. But certainly if we do, it shows God that we are sincere. It shows God that we mean what we say, that we are in need, that we do need His help. He said, cry out day and night, though He bears long with them. You know, our answer may not come immediately. We want what we want, and we want it now. And yet God's timetable may may not be ours. With Him, a thousand years is as a day. And for us, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, that's a long time. And yet, we certainly need to understand that God has a timetable. He knows our needs and will work with us on that. But God wants us to cry out. Some time ago, 
I read a poem that really illustrates this. I hope you'll enjoy it. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keys, the only proper attitude is down upon your knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and rapturous, upturned eyes. It seems to me his hands should be devoutly clasped in front, with both hands, both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hopkins Well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up, my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, best prayer I ever said. The prayingest I ever prayed was standing on my head. <laughs> so the point is, brethren, there are no atheists hanging upside down in a well. <laughs> so hopefully the, the point is made. God would like for us to be fervent and to cry out to Him. Uh, like uh, Cyrus Brown. Brethren, Jesus, as we see his prayers, always address God as Father. Turn over to Matthew 6 again. Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. <clears throat> Matthew 6, verse 9. You know this by heart. It says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father. It may be difficult for those of us who may not have a close relationship with our Father to really develop that. But we are, whatever our circumstance and in our own lives, to develop a close personal relationship with God as our Father. In Romans 8, in Galatians 4, I won't turn there, we find that we are to call God Abba, or Dad. You see, to have that kind of relationship. Because He does look upon us as His children. He does love us. And we can go to Him with that close, personal relationship as Father or Dad. That's our instruction in the model prayer. I know that you address Him in that way. My admonition is to really consider what that means and to develop that relationship with your heavenly Father. Now, Jesus inspired the apostles uh, to give us more details about what we should include in our prayers. We've been looking at, at Christ's prayers, but there was the Holy Spirit in, inspired the apostles to record other things. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Here we have instruction from Paul, inspired by God. Romans 8, verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. And aren't we thankful for that? For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Isn't it interesting? We, As human beings, we may have one thing on our mind when God realizes we should be emphasizing something else. We may be completely off on a tangent. So we may not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So, brethren, ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask God through the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what you should be praying about. That you're on the same page, as we might say, or on the same wavelength, or have the same thing on your mind that God has on His in your life. 
the Holy Spirit will guide you into what you should pray. Verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then something that requires faith, particularly as we're going through a trial. Verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So brethren, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And we need to ask for guidance in what we should pray about. Using the guidelines and things we've been talking about today in the sermon. Using the example that we have and then applying that to us so that we can have the right priority. The right approach. The right things on our mind when we go before God. Turn back to James. The Lord's brother had instruction for us. Very important that we understand it. James, chapter 1, James 1, verse 5, James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, and brethren, I think we all do, because living and learning is a lifetime process, and we certainly hopefully gain wisdom as we go through life. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Put that on your prayer list. (laughs) See? Run out of something to pray? Ask for God to give you wisdom. Who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So it says that God will give us wisdom. Verse 6, but let him, not, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Here's a principle, brethren, when you go to God, asking for wisdom or for any other thing, do so without doubting. Ask in faith. Because it says clearly that God expects us to come for Him without doubting. And He will hear us. He will answer us. What an incredible promise. What an incredible resource. And as human beings, we often overlook that and don't really take that at face value and and claim that promise. While we're in James, turn over to James 5. Certainly a, a scripture that all of you know by heart. It's something that we treasure. It's a great promise, a great blessing. James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Today in our announcements, we had a number of prayer requests. Different types of problems, different types of suffering. And so here's instruction about what to do in those circumstances. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Oftentimes we think of something else to do. Uh, uh, And yet we should, the first reaction we have when we're suffering is to pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will, you notice it doesn't say maybe or possibly, will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Certainly, brethren, if we're suffering, we should pray. Verse 16, it says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We see that recurrent theme. The prayer that God hears must be, fervent. The 
uh, haphazard or uh, prayer that is not heartfelt will not get the response from God that you want. Now, as we think about this, we have a great example here going on in context. You know, we read about these people, these biblical characters, and sometimes they aren't real to us. But I think this really makes it real to me, and I hope it does to you. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with nature like ours. So Elijah was a man who had, uh, he was a human being. He got tired. He got hungry. He had good days. He had bad days. He was somebody like us. He was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Now, that's an incredible intervention. God heard his prayer. It did not rain for three years and six months. That was a great curse on the area that didn't get that rain. Look at verse 18. And he prayed again. This ordinary man through whom God did extraordinary things. He prayed again and the heaven gave rain. And the earth produced its fruit. I think this is a great example, brethren. God can work through and does work through ordinary people. He's working through us to accomplish His work and His will. And He will hear our prayers just as He did the prayers of Elijah. And we need to know how to go to Him and to really uh, strive to do as He would have us do as we do all of these things. Brethren, there are so many more scriptures illustrating uh, more aspects of prayer and its importance. And in time to come, we'll take some other look at those. Today, we've taken a look at the prayers of Jesus, and we've seen that He prayed fervently before important events in His life. He prayed for guidance. He prayed for strength, for courage. He was constantly thankful, even when times were difficult. He was thankful in His prayers. He was careful to pray for others, intercessory prayers. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for little children. He even prayed for his enemies. He prayed often. He prayed alone. He prayed with others. He left us a wonderful example to follow. He also gave us plain instructions for the times in which we live today. Turn over to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, Luke 21, verse 36, words that you know well, but very important words, certainly in the context of what we're looking at today. Luke 21, verse 36, Jesus Christ said, watch therefore, be alert, you see, stay awake, watch therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Brethren, study the prayers of Jesus Christ and pray always.